Detectives hunting the killer of Norfolk schoolgirl Joanna Young are appealing for people with even the smallest piece of information to come forward. Joanna's partly cloaked body was found in a water-filled pit about a mile from her home on Boxing Day. We do remain disappointed with the quality of responses from the people close to the killer. People like her didn't just go missing and disappear. During the Christmas holidays in December 1992, teenager Joanna Young went missing from her hometown in Watton in the county of Norfolk, East England. Her body was found three days later, floating face down in a freezing waterfield pit. Her jeans were missing. She had a fractured skull and had been dragged to the pit from a nearby path, probably by two people. Who killed her remains unsolved to today. Welcome to Unfinished, the podcast where we look at cold cases in East England. My name is Tom Bristow. I'm a journalist at a local paper here in Norfolk called the Eastern Daily Press. I'm not going to waste your time with impossible theories. We'll focus on facts. We'll ask why no one has been caught in this case, despite police being convinced that they know who did it. And we'll look at four unanswered questions which hold the key to solving this case today. In this first episode, we'll investigate the background to Joanna's death. What sort of place was her hometown of what in 1992? And more importantly, what was Joanna like? Let's start with what happened the night and days after she went missing. Here's my colleague, Jerry Scott, to tell us more. Joanna Young, five foot four inches tall, pretty, with curly brown hair, left her detached home at 86 Merton Road, where she lived with her mum, Carol, dad, Robert, a television engineer, older sister, Emma, and younger brother, Daniel, at around 7.30pm on December 23rd, 1992. It was minus three and foggy outside, the beginning of the festive season, and hardly anybody was about in Watton that night. The 14-year-old, wearing a purple anorak over a bottle green bodysuit, blue jeans and black trainers, walked half a mile towards Watton High Street, through the 1950s housing estate where she lived. Friends saw her on the high street, near a supermarket called The Gateway, where the town's teenagers used to hang out. One witness said she seemed down, but her family said she was happy. Joanna's parents, who still live in Watton, thought she must have stayed with her boyfriend Ryan that night due to the bad weather. What they didn't know was they had split up a couple of days earlier, and Joanna had taken down all the Christmas cards in her room. They first realised their daughter hadn't come home when her alarm clock rang at 6am on Christmas Eve. Joanna was meant to be getting up for her paper round. We noticed that her carry bag was still in her bedroom, so again, we're quite worried about that. Yeah, she she never missed, did she? And she, no. um, they phoned up and asked where she was, and we said, "Well, she's missing. We haven't, we can't, don't know where she is." And those are the voices of Joanna's parents speaking as part of an anniversary appeal for information in December 2013. They haven't given an interview since. It, it's a horrible feeling because you're always hoping that she, she will turn and come round in the door and and yet you know because she's not let you know that she's been out or that it's unusual and and uh, you're, there, there's a real pain in the, in the pit of your stomach because you know this must be something wrong. When she had not shown up by 7am, they called the police. A search across the town began. Police quizzed 30 friends and relatives, 
visited pubs and clubs. They searched farm buildings and woodlands. Here is John Kitson, a reporter for the Eastern Daily Press at the time, who covered the case. There was an undercurrent of a feeling that she hadn't just gone. She was a well-known lass in the... And, and people like her didn't just go missing and disappear. The deputy head teacher at Joanna's school, Jan Godfrey, remembers being called to a break-in at the school on Christmas Eve when she first found out. It was really strange. Um, I had a phone call from the caretaker saying that the school had been broken into and could I come? So my husband and I broke our Christmas off for a moment, we thought, and got to school and saw where the kids had broken some glass and, and got in. I mean, I imagine it was kids that all faded into unimportance when Tom, the caretaker, said to me, uh, amazing about, about Joanna, who's gone missing. And I said, gone missing? Yeah, we'd had nothing then. She was, it, it had just happened overnight. It, it was just really weird. Everybody was celebrating Christmas and this awful thing had happened. The family abandoned their Christmas Day plans to appeal through the media for her to come home. The Boxing Day edition of the EDP led with the headline, Fears for Missing Norfolk Girl, 14. Then, on Boxing Day afternoon, there was a breakthrough. A dog walker found Joanna's black trainers tucked neatly in the undergrowth of a little-used track east of the town centre called Griston Road. Police search teams found her body later that evening at 8.20pm. She was floating face down in a pit full of freezing water less than a mile from her house at the edge of a woodland called Wayland Wood. Her body was discovered around 130 yards from her shoes, near a path called Gilman's Drift, which is known to the locals as Muddy Lane. Her jeans had been removed and were missing. Her underwear was strewn across nearby bushes, and the police believed, incorrectly as it would turn out, that she had been sexually assaulted. Her body was covered in scratches. She had a fractured skull and was thought to have been alive when put in the water. Let's start by meeting PC Peter Wormsley. He was a neighbourhood officer in Watton and Norfolk Constabulary's press spokesman at the time. He is now retired, but still lives in the town, and knows the background to the Joanna Young case better than almost anyone else. He agreed to take me on a drive around Joanna's last known route. It is late summer, early autumn, and it's market day in Watton. We start our drive on the road where Joanna lived. We're in Merton Road, so this is the route that she probably would have uh, taken, or she could have turned right down East Road. So we're now going down East Road, which is probably where she walked that night. Now she could have turned right just here on the right-hand side. You've got an entrance to Orchard Close. And they've got an alleyway there that leads directly to um, the old Gateway store. The Gateway store became a key part of the police investigation. We'll find out more about why that was later on. So now we've got the library there, the police station there, which is now tourist information, da da da. And this is the high street and here. And this is the high street here. Um, it's, it's virtually dead after seven o'clock at night. It's the chip shop, Gary's yeah. Place. Close to outside Gary's Place is where Joanna is last seen alive. And it's market day today. And it's market day today. So, so it's still it's, a, still a, a, it's you know, a bustling town. It's a busy place. Day. Yeah, it's yeah. a busy place. Washington was not so different 26 years ago to today. 
Some of the shops have changed their names. The town has grown by about 2,000 people to around 7,000. The high street is still busy on market day, but in the evenings there is not a lot for young people to do. The nearest city, Norwich, is still a good 40-minute drive away. Peter and I drive up the road towards Norwich for around half a mile. This is where Joanna would have walked that night. There is now a big Tesco supermarket on the right-hand side, but the road quickly becomes residential. We turn right down a quiet lane called Griston Road. Another half mile down this road, it meets a track, known as Gilman's Drift, on Muddy Lane. So I'm now walking down what was uh, once Muddy Lane, Gilman's Drift, close to where Joanna's body was found. It's now a tarmacked uh, path for cyclists and walkers. There's a new housing estate on our right-hand side. Swatton is, is a growing town and quite a lot of people about as well. It's a very enclosed space. There's a good amount of hedgerows and trees either side. So it's not a path you can really look into from the outside. You'd have to be on the path itself um, to see anything at all. I personally think around here is where they found her shoes. Yeah. And that was interesting, wasn't it? Because the shoes were, were found neatly tucked under... Neatly placed together. Yeah. And her jeans disappeared. Yeah. And I went up in a helicopter and, and then miraculously they appeared again. Washed and thrown back on the hedge. The discovery of Joanna's jeans three weeks after her body was found was one of a number of clues which led police to believe the killer was someone local and that someone in the town was withholding information. Remember, she was found in a frozen pond without her jeans on, but her top half was clothed. Only locals would have known about that pond and how to get there. It is a few yards down the track by a woodland, but the path to it has now been blocked off. So the pond was just through here, and we're now looking at we're now looking at a beautiful big blackberry bush. Ran along there. That was a pond, deep pond, where that big tree is. Yes, yeah. So round about there. Okay, that's where it was. And we can't go in, unfortunately. No, it's all, uh, all covered up now with, uh, with blackberries. Blackberries and a wire fence and um, a field full of um, sugar beet. We'll leave Peter to the blackberries for now, but we'll be hearing from him later. As you can probably tell, there were quickly several clues for the police to go off. So how did the force's best detectives fail to solve a crime which appeared to many observers to be an unplanned killing or even a horrible accident? We'll find out more about that in episode two. But before we can understand why, I think we need to look at what sort of place Watton was at the time. Watton is about 25 miles from the county capital, Norwich. It is not well connected. There's no trains and the bus to Norwich takes about an hour. The direct road is a B road. The surrounding countryside is picturesque, a traditional farming area. The town hosts the Wayland Agricultural Show each year, one of the oldest of its kind in the country. Watton used to be home to an RAF base, which has now closed and been partially turned into new housing. The area's biggest employers now include Crownswick Country Foods, which is a pork processing plant, and X-Heat, which makes heating systems. Here is John Kitson, who we heard from briefly earlier. He covered the town at the time of Joanna's death for the newspaper I now work for. I always think Watton's been slightly inward looking. They wouldn't thank me for it, but a certain level of naval gazing goes on in Watton. But it's full of good, enthusiastic, hardworking people. Small, self contained, and 
relatively quiet and uh, and uh, not sleepy, quiet but active. What's, what sort of stories were you, were you covering at the time about Watton before this? Town councils, football, basic bread and butter stuff and anything else which came to hand. Massive carnival every year, one of the biggest ones in, in the region. Uh, and, uh, it wasn't, none of it was world shattering. World shattering news didn't come out of Watton, it wasn't that kind of place. And here is Joanna's former teacher, Jan Godfrey. It's always been a bit rurally deprived, you know. It's always the last one to get the services. You know, we're, we're not on the main road. And it's, we've always been a bit last in the list. I also asked Jan about what Joanna was like as a pupil. She was mischievous. Um, she was fun and quite funny. Um, very good at English and drama, which is how I knew her. She wasn't an academic, but she was okay. She was, she was good. Um, she loved drama, so I got on fine with her. Um, but there were some subjects she didn't like quite so much, and she wasn't quite such an easy pupil in those subjects. Mm. She was a typical 14-year-old of that, of that time. Um, but she, was, um, she would leap to other children's defence. She was very socially minded. Um, and she was a great kid, really. A great kid. These are memories of Joanna from her school, read out at her funeral. In 1993. She was an ordinary girl and part of the teenage scene in Watton. At the same time, Joanna was, like every other child, unique. She had special talents and interests. She had a spirit of adventure which left her at just 18 months to climb to the top of a ladder and more recently to try sports like fencing and parascending. She loved all things artistic and had a real talent for drawing and painting. She enjoyed performing she took ballet classes and enjoyed drama activities at school. Photos of her room from the time show a typical teenage girl's room. Cuddly toys, books, a present from her boyfriend. This is a report in March 1993 from ITV journalist David Hughes. Three months on and little has changed in Joanna's bedroom. The sketches her parents thought would lead her to an artistic career. Initials on a dictionary given to her by her boyfriend. Joanna would have celebrated her 15th birthday last month. I contacted Joanna's parents for this podcast, but they have not responded. They have, however, given interviews down the years. The last one they gave was at Christmas 2013, as part of an appeal for information 21 years after their daughter's death. Here they are speaking to the Press Association. Normal teenager, full of life, full of fun, uh, gets up to tricks and plays jokes. Um, she loved music. She liked dancing. Of course, when she did have her music on, it weren't exactly loud. It weren't exactly soft. It was loud, and um, you know, she's just a normal, fun teenager. And got on with everybody. Um, could make friends with just about anybody. You know, uh, just full of life. Describing his daughter the day after her body was found, Robert said, "She had no enemies in the world. She was such a friendly, happy girl." And here is what he told journalist Nick Davis in 1993. She had a lot of ambitions, more or less a different one each time she thought about it. For a while she was going to be a motor mechanic so that she could help to mend the car when it wouldn't start. Then she was going to be an interior designer, but she dropped that when she discovered she'd have to go to college for two or three years. She was always very bright and very artistic. She would have found something. Joanna spent the morning of December the 23rd at the house of Vivian and Adrian Sellers. They lived near her and ran a taxi firm in the town. 
Joanna helped them out during the school holidays and on Saturdays with cleaning, taking calls and polishing the cars. It was just so tragic that she, we, we lost her and lost her the way we did. She would, I don't know what she would have come of her, but she would have been a, she was a brilliant girl, she really she was. She was quite quiet and, and calm, really. Yeah, she was very you know, quiet, yeah. expected her to have sort of gone out in a, in a brash type of way. She wasn't a puny girl either, she was, she was strong enough to do what I wanted her to do, physically strong, and, and mentally she just got on with it. The day she went missing, she was also working for you, is that right? That morning, yeah. She didn't stay too long because there wasn't too much to do. Not like on an ordinary Saturday morning because the schools had finished and we had sort of cleaned the other car cars up. So there wasn't too much to do. G gave her a... Um, no, she, did she have a... Pre did I give her a present that morning? I can't remember. Do you remember what, what mood she was in that morning? Her normal self. I know she did discuss one boyfriend... Um, who was a lot older than her, but I was not in a position to say anything, was I? Joanna is, by all accounts, a happy-go-lucky, friendly, popular and lively girl. But she was also part of the town's youth scene, hanging out at the Gateway store, which was associated with a darker side. I'm talking here underage drinking, drugs and sex. Now, there's no suggestion that Joanna drank to excess or took drugs, but this bit is relevant and it was heavily investigated by the police at the time because this is the world that their main suspect came from. Here's PC Peter Wormsley again to tell us more. I'll be absolutely honest with you, uh, there was a subculture in Watton, I called it a subculture, and we did not know what they were doing. Why not? As, as Young boys were taking drugs before Viagra came along, to keep it up so that they could have sex with young girls. It was there under the surface, but people didn't want to talk about it because it was, you know, you know, uh, what's the word? salacious kind of stuff. It's a very uncomfortable subject. It's very it? uncomfortable, especially if parents are still around. And, uh, you know, how many people know what their children are doing at the age of 13, 14, 15 when they go out with their friends? It's not an awful lot of people know what happens. And the police did eventually build up that picture, didn't they? Yeah, they did build up the picture. I mean, they did find out that she was going to parties and going to certain places. And um, you may not want to hear what I'm going to say now, but I'll, I'll give it to you anyway. She had gone to a party the night before and had told the taxi driver that, um, that picked her up in Durham to drop her 300 yards away or roughly, you know, away from her house so her parents wouldn't know she was coming in. She'd left a window open. This is the night before she goes missing? Yes. Yeah. So, and other nights as well. I think the taxi driver knew her quite well. Adrian Sellers was the taxi driver Peter's referring to who used to give Joanna some lifts. He doesn't remember dropping her off the night before she went missing but said he did used to drive her and her sister home from parties from nearby Durham quite late at night. Well, I, I would bring them back from Durham on a Saturday night where they'd been to dance there. They wouldn't want me to take them home, they'd go in the middle of the street and, and um, they'd be calmly sitting there, they'd not be up to any mischief, they'd just be chattering away and I'd go past two or three times and it'd be up to half as one, two o'clock and they would still be there. Her and, and her friends. Her and her, daughter, her sister and a, and a friend or whoever. I never seen any, I can't remember seeing any guys. 
Now, I've read every article in our archives about this case by local and national papers. That's more than 100 newspaper articles. And there is no mention of this anywhere. So this is new information for the public, at least. The other thing we've heard in this episode so far, which I also can't find any mention of anywhere in all the past coverage of this case, and Peter Wormsley tells me the police did not know about, as far as he remembers at least, is the fact that the school, Wayland High, was broken into the night Joanna went missing. Remember Jan Godfrey told us about that at the start of this episode. It was really strange. Um, I had a phone call from um, the caretaker saying that the school had been broken into. And could I come? Of course, that may be completely irrelevant to what happened to Joanna. They are likely to be two unconnected events. On the other hand, Joanna lived opposite and went to that school. Could it be that she bumped into someone she knew who was out messing around that night, another pupil or an ex-pupil? Remember, there is hardly anyone around that evening. It is cold and foggy. So if police find evidence of anyone else around that night, such as someone breaking into the school close to where Joanna lived, they should surely have investigated that, if they had known about it. Jan Godfrey says she thinks the caretaker reported the break-in to police, but she can't be sure. It is difficult, of course, for anyone to remember things from 26 years ago. When I asked Peter Wormsley about it later, he says this is the first he has heard of a break-in at the school. He goes on to say it was difficult to get information out of Wayland High. Any information that came from the school was either through their parents or through their mates. Nothing came to us directly. And that was just appalling. It is a line of inquiry you would have expected the police to look at if they had known about it, if it had been reported to them. Especially as there is no evidence that Joanna was dragged or forced down Muddy Lane. Indeed, her footprints show her going down there of her own accord, suggesting she was either with someone she knew or was going to meet someone she knew. Locals at the time said that there were barns in that area which were popular with young couples who wanted to meet away from parents' eyes. How, how did the police go on to, to establish more about the, the culture and, and Joanna's background and, and life that she was li- living leading up to her death? Well, I think they interviewed quite a few people once they've started to really dig. I wasn't involved in that, but um, I heard that they, you know, I walked into the, the uh, briefing room and they were really absolutely quite shocked by what they'd found out, what I've already told you. It was very disturbing. And why, why do you think all that was relevant to the murder? Well, because probably the suspect now, we're not going to name the suspect. Firstly, defamation laws in the UK stop us. Secondly, he's never been charged with a crime. And people are innocent until proven guilty. There'll be more about that in a later episode. Sorry. <laughs> um, was probably involved uh, in those parties. A year after her death, Nick Davis, a leading investigative journalist, visited Watton to write an article for an our defunct magazine called Options. The article was called Murder Among Children. Here is his chilling finding, read by Jerry. When Joanna died last winter, the pavement outside gateways was suddenly trampled underfoot with adults, all suddenly wanting to know everything about all of them, all agreeing that it was a terrible shock when a thing like this happened in a place like Watton, all wondering out loud what kind of person could possibly want to kill an innocent 14-year-old girl and leave her floating half-naked in a pit full of icy water. The truth sunk in quite quickly. And a year later... More or less everyone in Watton knows the truth about the lives that the children had been leading and about the person who killed Joanna Young. 
The police now think that they know exactly who did it, and how, and why. And although they can't prove it, and although the rest of the world may still not understand, almost everyone in Watton now knows that the prime suspect for the murder is one of their own children. We'll look at theories and suspects in the next episode. But first, I want to ask Jan Godfrey about the youth culture in the town. She taught at Joanna's school, Watton High, for 30 years. Surely she must have been aware of what was going on. There was, um, there was a lot of the police investigation focused on um, sort of the youth culture of the town, didn't it? And things about you know, the group that Joanna was hanging out with, underage drinking, um, things like that. Was, was that something on your radar? Or? It's very hard for me to say, but I've always felt that the, the event of Joanna's death caused inevitably an awful lot of questions to be asked about the youth culture. And we got some of your colleagues from national papers in you know, the sort of investigative journalism gone wrong, really, um, you know, finding, finding things that weren't there. No, that weren't really there. We were no different from any other market town. Um, in fact, probably a lot better than many. But you'd have thought it was the den of iniquity. So we've heard two different sides here about the youth scene Joanna was part of in this case. Her ex-teacher says Watton was no worse than anywhere else, something John Kitson, the former EDP reporter, also tells me. Small towns in the UK have long had issues with underage drinking. I found an article in our newspaper archives from January 1993 about a disco in the nearby town of Deerham. The headline is Outrage at Teenage Disco Sex Session. The article claims a 14-year-old girl and 17-year-old boy, who were both very drunk, had sex on the dance floor while other teenagers watched. The other side, put across in Nick Davis's article and by PC Peter Wormsley, says even hardened police officers were shocked when they found out some of the things children in Watton were up to. When something goes wrong, people look for causes. That's perfectly natural. And that, I think, is one reason why the youth culture received so much attention after Joanna's death. Watton probably was no worse than anywhere else for kids messing around. But that doesn't mean it was not shocking or not relevant to the case. The importance of this will become clearer in the next episode, where we start looking at the investigation, theories, evidence and a mystery postcard. Thank you for listening to Unfinished. If you found this episode interesting, please share and recommend it with your friends. You can also find out more about this case by visiting the Unfinished Podcast webpage on the Eastern Daily Press website, www.ed.com.